That was Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know, Britney Spears, produced by Robert John Mutt Lang, written by Lang, Shania Twain, and Keith Scott. The song was the fourth single from the diamond-selling album Oops, I Did It Again, released back in 2000. And yes, I said diamond. The album in the United States sold over 10 million copies in less than five years. Welcome to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On the show, I unpackage music with the artists and creatives who were there, all the while helping out charity. For more information, visit www.theoriginaldoll.com. And thank you to the Patreon patrons. Because of you, this show can keep going. To follow us, go to Instagram, the.original.doll. As with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. If you see anything posted, please notify the webmaster. Now, on with the show, I am James Rodriguez, and this is the original doc. The original doc. Now, here's some fun facts. As many of you who follow me on my socials know, I kind of go through because many times people say, James, the US radio date says this date on Wikipedia, but I feel like I heard it before then. Can you clarify? Well, that's what I'm here to do. With Wikipedia, first and foremost, anyone can change any of those dates. Anyone could add any of that information. Secondly is oftentimes radio will say, okay, the label is saying this is going to be released on said date, and people utilize that. But what we know is that the demand for Britney Spears music was so high that many stations were playing the song as soon as they got it. So the U.S. radio debut of Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know, May 12th, 2000. There were two cities that played it that day, Trenton, New Jersey, and Providence, Rhode Island. Then I looked to see which U.S. city has played the song more than any other city. That would be Kansas City, Kansas. Now, chart-wise, back in 2001, the song would go number one in Romania, number three in Croatia, and number three on the U.K. indie charts. That's right. Don't forget, everyone, Jive Records was an indie label. Now, sales-wise, the song would be certified gold in Belgium and Denmark, and since 2019, Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know would chart in three different countries on iTunes. I wanted to give you a little bit of information on that. And here is my exclusive interview with Jive Records A&R guy Steve Lunt. They say you say we're so incomplete. Everyone, I would like to welcome you back to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I am packaged music with the people who created the people who are there making all this great iconography. And we give back to charity. So for every question or guest answers, we get items donated to those in need. For more information, follow me on Instagram, the.original.doll. Now, today we have returning guest, Steve Lunt. Steve, thank you so much for being here today. You are the A&R guy. We all know now you're, you know, ultimately this orchestrator with all these early albums. So thank you so much for deep diving with the entire discography of Britney Spears at this point. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm an orchestrator. I like that. <laughs> I know. I was very like, what word can very I use? sophisticated. And well, what's what's been great is you're somebody who's been able to give us insight into these songs that even because even if you didn't produce a song, you still knew about the song because you're somebody who if a song was up for contention, like if it's like a contender, it's right here. We're about to put it. You would know those songs. You have all these stories of, let's say this is the sequencing of the album. These songs were on there and we've been able to clear up misinformation. Like did Britney Spears sing Gene in a bottle first? The answer is no. You know, all these wild and crazy thoughts and theories you've been able to help us debunk. So thank you for that. You're welcome. All right. So today in honor of, it's been about 22 years, spring of 2001, 2002, that we had, or 2001, that Britney Spears released Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know. One of one of my you know favorite ballads by Britney Spears, and I got a ton of questions about this. So I'm going to throw you all the questions right now, and we'll kind of 
go and and do that deep dive together. I'll so I'll see what, I'll see what I, I can remember. I love it. Now, what many people were shocked with is they didn't realize that Mutt Lang was a huge producer before this. And I'm like, it's okay. We can we can talk about that. So can you know in a second? Can you talk about how? First of all, who Mutt Lang was at that time in music leading into this kind of Britney time. And ultimately, the story about how the song got created, because unlike most other ones, not everything was done here in the United States. With Britney Spears, especially early on, those first two albums, there was a lot of recording overseas, that sort of thing. So let's rewind back. Who was Mutt Lang at this point? point that you know the producer of you know don't let me be last to know okay um mutt lang uh is oh and what was is, the connection too because there was a connection with jive and mutt lang yeah yeah um uh the owner of uh and founder of jive records is clive calder is a south african his prior job before coming to the uk and starting Jive and Zomba was as uh, head of a r for EMI South Africa. Uh, in that capacity, he met a young, up-and-coming young um, uh, producer and songwriter called Mutt Lang. And to cut a long story short, he used to let Mutt go into the studio and uh, and and record anything he wanted and try and turn out hits, which is what he did. And in the end, they, they had quite a lucrative business because they would, they would end up um, covering songs from America and the UK, which had not yet been released in South Africa. And they would beat the official releases to the punch by about two, two, three weeks. Cause they were, you know, because Clive is a hustler and Mutt <laughs> is that good that he can do it. And what they would do is, you know, so they take a Tom Jones song or, a, you know, like, you know, whatever it, whoever the artists were at the time. And in, in the, um, I guess it would have been the, I don't know, what decade was this even in the 80s, I guess. I don't 80s. Know. Um, and, um, and Mutt would sing all the male vocal covers that they would do. And they wouldn't try to recreate it. They would do it exactly like the record, but they would do the cover. Mutt would would sing those and arrange them and produce them, and his wife Stevie would do the female singer. So between the two of them, they ended up with God knows how many gold records for what they mm -hmm. did. You know, by beating other major labels to the punch. This is and they made a you know, um, that was their livelihood at that point. Then when Clive Calder came to the UK. Uh, with his partner Ralph Simon at the time, and they started up Zomba Publishing because they started that up before they started Jive Records. Um, they, in the end, like very soon after that, they bought Mutt over and said, Mutt, you're going to be a big producer. We're going to get behind you. They were managing Mutt at that point. So they put Mutt up with, I think, the first thing he ever did in England was with this guy, Paul Jones, who was the ex-lead singer of Manfred Mann's band from the from the 1960s. The second uh, act and the first album he did in, in the UK was the band I was in, uh, a band called City Boy. And, whoop, whoop. Uh, <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> so, um, and that was his, and then, and that was for Virgin Records. Well, Adver sorry, at Virgin's uh, studio, we did that called The Manor. And uh, we were recording for Vertigo, which is part of uh, Polygram. So we did our album and then started to get a lot of notice from that. And then um, went on to to produce, you know, the, um, bands right after that. This may be names that, that your younger audience aren't aware of, but uh, in historical sense, you know, they could look it up and they could see how big these artists were at the time. But, you know, the, the Boomtown Rats, who were one of the first sort of punk bands in England at the time who crossed over to pop, um, <clears throat> they did, you know, Graham Parker and like a, a bunch of other other people. Um, and and they and he got, um, you know, he got a, a name for himself. Um and then slowly as as time went by, he started to like up his game and he started to work on and he worked on big American acts like Foreigner, you know, their biggest uh, albums 
uh, The Cars, uh, their biggest album, Brian Adams, his biggest album, mm -hmm. uh, Huey Lewis and the News, uh, his biggest album, Billy Ocean, you know, the, uh, the uh, Trinidadian uh, singer, uh, soul singer from England, did that. He did um, Celine Dion, The Cause, and recently Maroon 5, Lady Gaga, Nickelback and uh, and and the very hip English band uh, Muse. I mean, he's mm -hmm. basically done everything. And I and I shouldn't leave out that he did Def Leppard. Uh, their mm -hmm. their major hits. Who uh, they were just like a, a cult name and for one album, their first album until Mutt got hold of them. Then they had those massive multi multi platinum albums. And from that, then he went on to do ACDC with uh, with you know his to me my favorite albums he's ever done. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, Back in Black and Highway to Hell, all their big, massive, worldwide classic hits. So he was already a, like a huge name. I mean, I'll put it this way for for the people who know Britney and Britney's producers by name. or But they, before there was Max Martin, there was Mutt Lang. Mm -hmm. Max Martin was a massive fan of of, of Mutt. Um, told me so on many, many occasions and patterned a lot of his arrangements and um, uh, and vocal arrangements and, you know, just patterned himself after, after Mutt as both, they're both kind of reclusive. Mutt is extremely reclusive. Um, but, uh, and, and so was Max Martin for a long time. In fact, still is kind of. And, and so, Max, by the way, for those listeners, Max, this, you know, icon of pop producing was a rock guy early on and so clearly he those the albums that you mentioned that influenced every person you know whether yeah. you like Def Leppard for it or not it's still influenced the music scene so here's Max Martin who basically rock was this production by Mutt Lang these specific ones we're talking globally and so it's funny to, when many people were like, I didn't realize he was like a rock guy. I was like, well, if you look at him, he still looks like he's a rock guy. The long brown hair, you know what I mean? Like yeah, jeans. Well, <laughs> when when Max, before Max became the Max Martin we know now, and he was in a rock band um, before he was this mega successful songwriter doing pop music, he was in a long haired rock band. And the and his hero was Mutt for doing all these other you know, long haired rock bands. So that's how he knew about <laughs> Mutt. But then when he became part of the jive and zomba setup in um this is max when he became part of that through the cheer on studios and the backstreet boys and everything once max max realized he could do pop music like no one else um uh he he was suddenly under the same umbrella as mutt lang his hero so he was that was one of the big selling points he came to zomba and jive because you know because Hey, if it's good enough for, for Mutt. Mm -hmm. And I've got to tell you a quick story about Mutt and Clive Calder because they met all those years back, you know, in South Africa. And the last thing that I knew, and uh, I haven't spoken to Clive, you know, for a while, but I've, I've been in touch with Mutt quite a bit. But I've never asked him about his business, you know, relationship. But from what I've heard uh, from Clive back in the day, that, that he and Mutt never had an official um, producer agreement, like a management agreement, which is, which is almost unbelievable in this world. When somebody is that mega successful, um, that person always leaves the manager or the manager, you know, like tries to screw them or something. There's always some friction that never happened. Um, in talking to Mutt on many, many occasions, he'd always say that the Clive, um, was his other half. They were totally different as people, you know, Mutt was, couldn't care about money you know even which is crazy because he's multi <laughs> multi mega millionaire through all the work he's done he would only care about the music and that's i believe that's true to this day and and clive would be the one who really you know took care of the the money aspect of it on behalf of both of them he would you know with his advice and his business acumen and uh an incredible partnership they had with no contract, nothing in writing. It was just purely on the honor system, like two South Africans respecting each other. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. I doubt if it's ever been done before or since, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think we would have, 
we would have heard about something like that. Do you know what I mean? Just in general, and yes. you hear. But the, the crazy thing is how so many people might not realize that connection that they had before. Because it's like, you know, somebody had reached out to me and said, oh, was it, you know, was Jive trying to just get Mutt Lang in there because he was just the big producer? You know, was that why he was only, you know, was he ever a fan of that? And it's like, well, little did they know that here is Mutt Lang who had a hist- a lifetime history with with Clive Calder. Yeah. So it only makes sense. And leading up, like in those 90s. The only jobs, you know, when... the, the only jobs the Mutt got were through Clive. Clive would be the one going out, finding those top artists and, the, you know, and then and then play them for Mutt and say, is this something you want to work on? If Mutt said yes, then that he Clive made that happen. So, you know, his whole work um, journey as a producer was was with Clive in tow. Well, charge. and the the one thing that I had not realized in forever was, you know, him working with Billy Ocean over a few albums. Yeah. Billy Ocean was a Jive Records artist. Yes. And so it's like, everyone's like, wait, in the 80s? Yes. So the connection of him working with Jive artist was started, you know, around the time Britney Spears was born. So that there was <laughs> this connection before that it's like, okay, so yeah. he clearly worked with Jive. And, and so... Then let me let me ask you this then. So we're in like the 90s, right? He then, Muttling, Shania Twain. Yeah. That combination comes up. And yes. I think most listeners will know Shania Twain, especially 90s Shania Twain. Huge. A Mutt, a Mutt founder in Canada, by the way. It was Mutt who, who said, you know, who saw one of her videos when he was uh, up near Canada. He saw like a Canadian country music station and he saw a video of uh, Shania doing some song and he literally got in touch with her. He hounded her, he stalked her and uh, and said, uh, and that's so the story goes. I mean, he told me that he, uh, you know, he literally kind of hounded her until she into submission, you know, like because she didn't know who Mutt Lang was. It was not in her world at all. In fact, her famous quote is, um, she said, what is a Mutt Lang? That's a, that was her quote. She had no idea. <laughs> he was like this incredibly successful producer and obviously found out and she was ambitious too. And uh, and that's how that became about. And Mutt started making records with her and then the rest is history. And and the, that's the crazy thing because it's like we're just celebrating the 30th anniversary of Shania Twain's debut album, which was before, you know, like I talk about this with Janet Jackson, where people are like, isn't Control her first album? Like, no, she had two albums before. But the Shania Twain, Shania Twain album, 30, we're celebrating 30 years in April, April 2023, 30 years. And then The Woman in Me, it's like he saw something in her and then this collaboration started. And for me, not since... Janet Jackson, Jamin Lewis, had I seen, you know, a female artist working with a consistent producer, songwriter for more than one song, because you would hear they would be in this, you know what I mean? Do one song here, maybe work with another. And so to me, I remember thinking, this makes sense. This meshes well. And clearly the critics, commercial, everyone loved the combination together. So when now we're up, Shania just released Come On Over 97, 98, all that. I mean, she was releasing singles for like what seemed like three years. You know, Mutt Lang is winning Grammys, country Grammys here and there. Hopping out for a quick second to remind you to join me on Patreon, www.theoriginaldoll.com. Through Patreon, you're going to be supporting this independent show. And you'll get some exclusive content in the different tiers. So www.theoriginaldoll.com. Now, I continue my conversation with Steve Lunt, and we talk about the question, the theory is, don't let me be the last to know a Shania Twain demo. We're going to get right to that. And if this is your first time listening to any interviews with Steve Lunt, please go back through the other episodes and check out. Basically, what we're doing is Britney Spears had a ton of songs and some that didn't make the official albums in the United States, some that are bonus tracks and more B-sides. We're going through them all, as Steve Lunt was with Britney Spears through 2005. We're going to get to all that, so have no fear. Make sure you subscribe to get notified right away. Now, back to the show. I mean, I, I didn't know that it was 
I never thought that it was a uh, Shania Twain, you know, offcast, if you like, that that it was something that was written for her. Um, but the most interesting interview I've read was with uh, the third writer on the song. It was Mutt Lang, it was Shania, who helped with the lyrics. And, and then there was this guy called Keith Scott. Um, Keith Scott was Brian Adams' guitarist um, in his in his band. And Mutt had produced Brian Adams, including like, you know, Grammy winning songs from, I think, Robin Hood, I think was one of his songs. Everything I do, I do for you. Yes, exactly. Um, and so according to Keith in, in an interview I read, he said that um, he didn't even know that this was going to be a Britney Spears song. It was something that years and years before he, during the recording and editing of a, of a, um, an overdubbing of a Brian Adams album. He was playing this thing in the studio, this chord sequence, and uh, and and Mutt, who was behind the desk, obviously producing. He said, "What is that?" <clears throat> and Keith had told him, "It's just you know this thing I'm working on," and that was all that was said of it. Um, Mutt must have had this thing in record because years and years later, um, he calls up Keith and says, "By the way." Um, those chords that you played, um, you're, uh, you're now, a I took those chords you know, and, and, and the figure of the way you were playing them and the voicings and everything. And you're now a co-writer on a Britney Spears song. And Keith is saying, well, what the, f you know, I, <laughs> he said, he said, first of all, he said, what chords are you talking about? I don't remember playing anything. <laughs> and Mutt said, well, you did. And I've taken them and you're getting credit, songwriting credit and, uh, and, all the credit you know that's deserved which i think speaks a lot for, for mutt's integrity by the way because i can name you know literally a thousand producers and writers who would not give that credit um so so he wasn't there for the recording of this or the or the writing of it per se it was just based on something he had come up with but he said that that mutt um had called him and said and said that this was a shania song um that that wasn't that Shania wasn't going to do or that that she didn't want to do or something like that. And so we're doing it with Brittany. Which leads you to believe that it was in fact, you know, <clears throat> written for Shania. However, having said that, this guy Keith wasn't there. So the only word we've got for it is is his from this phone call. And it might be making for a better story than it is to mm -hmm. say it was a Shania song. You know, we you know and then it, you know, it ended up with Britney. Who knows? Um, but that's as far as I can go because I never knew of it as an a, as her A and R person. I didn't know of it as being a Shania song. I just knew of it as as a song that that um, Clive had asked Mutt to write for Britney, and uh, and this is what he came forth with. In my mind, it's like Shania Twain huge even you know before britney was coming out and still huge especially she had her own market right there non-stop consecutive diamond albums so it would only benefit it if he said hey this was a shania twain song what can we have your country girls singing this song <laughs> like to me that would have been the selling point that he would have said hey because also at the time britney spears talked about her love of shania twain and so i think almost every single teen you know woman man like my i loved shania twain because she was able to give the ballads the fun songs and more and you know britney there's videos of her singing these songs watching videos and things like that of it so i feel like if it were you would have known hey this is shania twain because that would have been like britney what do you think she would have been like i feel like she would have been like perfect you know what i mean yeah. like throw it well, i'm sure well you know i mean i know we told Brittany that that it was written by you know Mutt and Shania. Um, to be fair, I don't think Keith Scott's name was mentioned. You know, mm -hmm. in, when you try to sell a song, I think Mutt and Shania are, are pretty strong, you know, mm -hmm. names to uh, to put forth. So I'm sure that that Brittany would have, you know, I've been completely flattered by that. So I doubt if they would have said, to be honest, well, this is a song that Shania turned down. She's mm -hmm. more likely to have, you know, they're more likely to have said. Clive would would most very likely have said to her, um, "It's a song that that uh, that that Mutt and Shania have written for you, you know." Um, and it may be true. Maybe they did. You know, we just don't know that. 
Okay, so Steve, now that we know more about the connections between Britney Spears, Mutt Lang, Mutt Lang Jive, Clive Calder, and everything, can you talk a little bit about where this was recorded? Because this song has a very odd path of creation. It was not just, here, Studio A, you're done, everything is done. <laughs> this is like the jet-setting song. So can you talk a little bit about where this was recorded, where you all travel? Because you were traveling with her. So where did you yeah, go? Well <laughs> Where the hell were you? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, from going back through, you know, the itineraries and some of the notes and from help from you to, to uh, remind me of, of the itineraries that I sent you. Um, uh, this is what happened. We went, we were recording in, in, in Sweden, Chiron with, uh, with Max Martin and, and his crew. And then from there, Brittany and I got on the plane and flew to Switzerland, which wasn't a, a, a long flight, but it's to Switzerland where, where Mutt lives. Uh, he lives by the side of Lake Geneva in this uh, really great chateau. It's uh, He's a very much a nature kind of guy, always has been, and, uh, uh, and, and loves the history of buildings and, uh, and surrounding areas. And he's very much a gardener as well so he he was you know working on all the all the gardens around this historic place this is where he and shania twain lived so when we got there shania was not there it was just mutt so is and it's a interesting story my main in fact my main memory of this whole trip to be honest with you is not the music because i didn't interfere with that at the time because the they went there to write and to get to know each other, which meant that I would take a back step and just get out of the, you know, out of the way. Um, they went up to Mutt's recording studio, which was above the stables. And this sounds like, you know, crazy rich <laughs> stuff. And I guess it is really, um, you know, Shania was a, is a horse person, you know, being a country girl from, from Canada. And she had, she loved horses and she's got the, she had these stables and, Mutt being a music person said, oh, that's wasted space above the stables. Let's put a recording studio there. So he put his own recording studio above the stables. Clearly soundproof from all the, uh, you know, the, the neighing sounds and the, uh, and the sounds of poop hitting the deck, I guess. <laughs> so um, so I, I didn't go up there, but I do know that that when we when we first drove up, we drove up in a, you know, a taxi, whatever it was. And uh and Brittany had never met Mutt. So, you know, and Mutt is a mysterious guy. There's no, at the time, there were no real photos of him online. And online wasn't a huge thing in those days anyway. I mean, nobody really went online to check out too much stuff. It wasn't like it is today. So um, we pulled up and we got out of the car and she sees the building. And, uh, and this guy comes walking towards her in, you know, bare feet and ripped jeans and mud all over him and sort of kind of straggly, um, curly, sort of 70s style, like shag haircut or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and comes up and Brittany's starting to walk straight past him. She thinks he's the gardener, um, but it was Mutt Lang. And so like I had to say, Brit, 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 hold on, hold on. I said, meet Mutt. She, and the look on her face, her eyes like went up, you know, went from the size of dimes to the size of uh, quarters. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's how she first met Mutt. She didn't realize that Mutt, you know, she'd heard on the way down, she'd heard about how big and famous Mutt was. And she knew all the hit records and everything that he was involved in. So when she met him, he was like, he was like, whoa, you know, and you could tell story Mutt just immediately hugged her, you know just picked her up and hugged her and said, really pleased to meet you. Cause that's the way he is. And, uh, and then they just disappeared and that was it, you know? Um, and what they did there was to work on, on, uh, on, a you know, ideas, Mutt would get the idea about her vocals, her vocal range, where she sounded comfortable. You know, Mutt was a singer himself, a really good singer. So he was really good at being able to um, decipher what singer could sing what well what key you know whether they have to change certain melodic lines to fit somebody's uh vocal uh, abilities etc so so they spent two days doing that and then 
we hopped on a plane out of there and went to, according to your notes that uh, that I think <laughs> uh, I might have given you, I can't remember. We went to London from there when she did the MTV uh, Music Awards. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. well, and it's so so many people are like James. How do you keep all this this information correct? It was like, well, the great thing is people like you who've also but who've also have your archive of information. So for the listeners. Steve will be like, here, James, this is this fax, or here's a screenshot of this, you know, that here's the itinerary we did that day. I put it in my my database because it also helps when we talk about where she was at. And I want people to realize that, like, here's Britney Spears working on the follow-up to this Smash album, recording this, getting ready for to present a new Britney, if you will. But at the same time, she is still performing those hits from the past year. So it's like, I can't imagine that. So can I ask you as as a you know as a performer as an artist how does that does that at all mess up with your mind when here you are behind the stage basically working on new music but then you have to flip it and go back to the older songs like is there any struggle with that does does it take a lot to balance that I mean all all kudos to uh to Britney for that because she was incredible at doing that um she could just change hats like that. And it was very natural to her, you know, would be working in the studio. And then suddenly she was due to go out on stage. And it's a big, it's a big jump from being in the studios. It's a different mindset, totally different mindset, being in the studio and thinking about details and being in front. There's a mic. It's a very cold situation. If you like, it's just you and the producer um, mm -hmm. working on details. And it's very one-on-one, -on -one, very personal having to jump from that into front of into the front of uh, TV cameras broadcasting your live performance um, to multi-millions of people throughout the world that's you know I imagine trying to do that it's it's almost impossible for the normal you know everyday person to to, to understand what that what that includes um, but she was able to do it so easily really impressive and it it's that crazy juxtaposition of that intimate out, not in the public eye, you know, being on this horse ranch, let's say that, that experience. And then going, now you have a whole crap ton of people applauding you say like, it's a different vibe and energy. And it's also like making sure, wait, what lyrics am I working on? Do you know what I mean? Like in her mind, she's yeah, like, I'm yeah. ready. Because one of the things that I think you and I talked about and others is that like, Britney was always excited to work on new songs and be like, let's just get this out where it's like, no, you have to hold on because a lot of these songs were being recorded while she was still releasing a month before this that we're talking about of her doing Don't Let Me Be Less. No, yeah. she had just, you know, you all had just decided the Born to Make You Happy bonus mix. The second version that was recorded was not going to be a single. So it's like, here you are promoting this Born to Make You Happy while you're ultimately recording this new album with all these songs that are on there. I couldn't imagine mentally trying to keep my ducks in a row and traveling. It's not just in one spot. She's going from country to country. Right, right. Well, I got to tell you, the most impressive thing about this is the fact that you use the expression crap ton. I think that was... A... <laughs> I think that's more impressive than anything else. Um <laughs> After I use juxtapose, juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah, this is impressive as as Brittany uh, making that that switch. Uh, oh. But but I must say after after uh, she um, you know after we, she did that, I think Mutt then must have put the track together if I remember correctly. Um, I'm putting two and two together in retrospect. I think then he put the track together for this in the correct key. You know, for don't let me be the last to know in the in the correct key for her and got the arrangement and basically recorded all the tracks for it, all the musical tracks, all the bad tracks, and then um, I'm not sure of the dates. I think I gave those to you, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. But then he came to New York and we recorded the vocals at Battery Studios in New York, <clears throat> which is Jive Record Studios. Yeah, and that's and this is the best part because we get to now really hear and see the evolution of these songs, ultimately how this album evolved, which is kind of cool to go, oh, wait, so she was finishing up recording Don't Let Me Be The Last To Know vocals while you had already signed off on like the final mix of Heart. Like all of these are happening within days of each other. And everyone, yes, we have Heart 
coming up very, 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 very soon. So just be prepared for that. So then to close up this part of Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know, what do you think Brittany was able to bring with this ballot as, you know, a 17, 18, you know, 19-year-old girl, I think 18 at this point, 17, 18. What do you think she was able to do differently and evolve how was the evolution of her as an artist singing ballad versus the first album? I think she saw it as being like a step forward in 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 terms of um, she found it challenging. I mean, and I can I can testify to what it's like to work with Mutt on the vocal level, having recorded um, <clears throat> four albums with him, five albums uh, as a singer. It's he's very demanding. Um, and trying to make you do things that you don't think you're physically capable of doing. And, uh, but also knowing your strengths and weaknesses too is a very astute person. And this would have been, this wouldn't have been the first time Britney's been put through that, but the, the type of songs she had to do for the first album were a little less demanding in terms of vocal range and all the rest of it. It was kind of more personality songs. Um, and, and making sure the soulfulness, you know, came through and the attitude came through. This was a bit more working with Mutt was a bit more, the, the song demanded a bit more of a vocal performance in a traditional sense, as opposed to just, uh, you know, relying on a oh, old baby, baby, you know, it was, mm-hmm. had, a, had, had more of a traditional song sense to it. Um, and I think, um, I think she found that challenging and I think she also found it very rewarding. And I think she said so in, in interviews at the time mm-hmm. that, that people might be surprised. Yeah. And that's something where, you know, we talked episodes ago, like a year ago plus at this point, where we just talked about the simple fact that there's always this discussion about Britney's tone. Does she have the ability to sing? Is she a storyteller? And what I what I want people to realize is Britney's voice is so unique and it's it's Britney's voice, and yet she's still able to sell a song as Britney Spears doing a Mutt Lang produced thing. And then at the same time, a KNS song or Max Martin, all of these, you know, producers and songwriters, people who've worked in the studio with her, like yourself, it's like Britney knows how to turn on the voice that she needs to turn on for her, where she knows how to sell a song as Britney Spears. And I think what was great is when I first heard this, I was like, this sounds like a Shania Twain Mutt Lang song and yet it's still such a Britney Spears song. And when right. I got to hear it, I was like, Oof, this is amazing. And all the different things that Muttling does with his voice. And so when I want everyone go make sure that you buy the, the iTunes version on this, the Dolby Atmos, put the headphones on because now that there's more elevated technology to actually get the, um, to get the kind of insight, to get that ear for this, you're able to hear these things. And I think that, what Britney Spears did was amazing on the song. And I think it helped further elevate her and separate her from some of the masses. Yeah. Um, I would like to actually quote um, a new musical express, which is a, uh, a, a music paper, weekly music paper in the UK it was very influential at the time. Um, a staff reviewer, this is from Wikipedia. And uh, I don't often believe Wikipedia, but this is a, a quote. So I actually do believe it when it's a quote. It says, a New Musical Express staff reviewer said that the song takes the riff of David Bowie and Iggy Pop's China Girl from 1983 and puts it over schmaltzy cocktail hour bass and love film strings. I got to tell you, this is the reason why you just have to hate reviewers, because they are mm-hmm. so stupid. They really are like as dumb as rocks you know and they say the most pompous things that they could possibly said the only i mean china girl is an up to is an upbeat song and anyone it's kind of kind of got these of i mean you have to listen to it listen to china girl by david bowie i you know i challenge your listeners to go and listen to that and then listen to uh, don't let me be the last to know by britney and see what the similarity is as a musician, there's only one similarity I can I can see, and that's the intro um, uh, figure from the keyboards in in Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know is kind of Asian and has a 
slightly, slightly, I, you know, I must say, similar melody to to one of the lines in China Girl. Otherwise, there is zero similarity mm -hmm. between the two songs. But that is an example of why you just can't believe anything you read. You just have to make up your own mind. Music is very subjective and should always be that way. You know, you well, should never, you should never, you know, listen to other people's opinions and let it sway your opinion. If you like it, say you like it. If you don't like it, say you don't like it. Mm -hmm. If you think it rips off another song, say it. That's what music's there for. It's it's public property. And and while this reviewer has a right to say what he says, he's full. There you go. See? There you so go. I, I love this. It's like, well, we Reaching. this Reaching, will be the yeah. last we know of you and from you. But I think to your point, though, is I feel like, and you and I, you've been such a advocate for Britney Spears. You've been somebody who was there for her. I mean, in her liner notes, you know, in, in messages she sent to you where it's like, you had her back and she appreciated that. And I think it's you also as an artist, you could see these things where it was like, they're just trying to tear down this woman because she's the it thing, if you will, right now. Like, that's the only reason why you're trying to do that. It's like, I did not know any David Bowie songs as, you know, Britney Spears' age listening to this. I'm like, I wasn't, I guess, cool enough to know any of that. But it seems so far-fetched to go, uh, like... It's like me saying, oh, that vitamin C song, you know, sounds, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody is in. And I'm like, wait, what are we what are we talking about? Like, it's I know. it's asinine in many ways. But reviewers usually know nothing about music themselves. So they try to flower this thing up and make it seem like they know more than they do. And usually they mean they know diddly squat. And reviewers and critics only benefit about the negativity. You never hear these glowing reviews. They always have to find something. So but the great thing is. The song was successful. The song did, I think, what it needed to do and further and separate Britney Spears from the others. Mm -hmm. It also gave Britney a viable, a, a ballad with songwriters, producers that were creating these iconic ballads. And Britney was able to take that, still have it be a Britney song and do well with it. So everyone have no fear. I'm going to be back with Steve very soon legitimately we've gone over every single song possible and so i'm just going to let you all know that steve will be back and don't forget to send me those messages steve thank you for being here today you're welcome i'm the a&r person you can't get rid of 100 percent. it helps that you're my neighbor knock knock <laughs> when's the last time you heard this song For those who might not know, this is He Doesn't Know I'm Alive by Janet Jackson from her third studio album, Control. Now the song talks about unrequited love. In the 80s, this was an all too familiar feeling with teens and young adults. As a matter of fact, one of the lines says, I got his number, I call him up just to hear him say hello, and when he answers, I always hang up. Now this is before caller ID and smartphones. This mid-tempo track is just one of two songs on the entire Control album that never received an official release. Now here's just a reminder, as you all know, on the original Dow with James Rodriguez, I love sharing all sorts of fun facts. Well, Janet Jackson's 1986 album featured nine songs, and the singles were Control, Nasty, What Have You Done For Me Lately, Non-Single, You Can Be Mine, and singles The Pleasure Principle, when I Think of You, Let's Wait a While, and my favorite from this album, Funny How Time Flies When You're Having Fun. Now we know what a smash album this was. Now this song, He Doesn't Know I'm Alive, was a game changer for Janet, and here's why. It was basically a litmus test for the producers Jam and Lewis to see what Janet was capable of taking on. And since then, since the Control album, Jam and Lewis have become a staple in Janet's discography. Now, Jim and Lewis talked about the creation of the song in many interviews, including the Red Bull Music Academy. Jimmy Jam said, The first song we did when we went into the studio was He Doesn't Know I'm Alive. It gave us a chance to see what she could do vocally because the song had a big range on it. There were a lot of high notes at the end. She nailed the vocal on it, and we were very happy with how she sounded. That made us see that there weren't any boundaries with what we could do with her. 
For instance, in coming up with a track called Nasty, it was very aggressive for a female singer. To me, the tracks we did for this record sounded like they could have been for a male artist or a rap artist. But we thought she would have the attitude to pull these songs off. And we were right. One thing I wanted to press upon you is that Janet Jackson often gets overlooked for many of her vocal skills. If you take a moment and listen, on so many Janet songs you can hear killer harmonies and vocal layering that is at times mind-boggling and astonishing. Vocal decisions that shouldn't make sense somehow make sense when they're executed by Janet, Jam, and Lewis. Now I wanted to point this little vocal part out towards the end of the song. Now, here's some amazing facts that, as you all know, I love sharing. This 1986 track, back in 2019, He Doesn't Know I'm Alive appeared at number 27 on the pop iTunes charts in the Philippines, and in 2021, it appeared also at number 27 on the pop iTunes charts in Sweden. With no promotion, no TikTok viral dance, the song is still finding an audience. Take a listen and let me know what you think. As we celebrate 20 years of American Life, the album, which happens to be one of my favorite albums of all time by Madonna, I wanted to add a song into this episode from the album, and it's called Nothing Fails. some U.S. radio information on this. Now, it actually had its U.S. radio debut April 21st, 2003 in Los Angeles. Now, the city that has given the song the most love in the United States, this truly to me is amazing. The city in the United States that has played this more than any other city, El Paso, Texas. Now, do you remember what city you were in the first time you heard the song? Let me know. Here's some other interesting facts about the song. Now, in 2019, Nothing Fails appeared at number 15 on the All Songs charts on iTunes in Guatemala and number 51 on the pop charts in Lithuania that same year. Now, the Tracy Young underground radio edit of Nothing Fails peaked at number seven on the All Song charts in Costa Rica this year. Now, did you see my videos I posted? It's on Instagram and it's on Twitter at James Rodriguez. I made several videos during my time in Costa Rica honoring Madonna, Janet, Brittany, and so many others, and there are a ton of videos that are going to be coming out. Did you also know that that same time, the remix would peak at number five on the pop charts in iTunes, Greece? That's right. Nothing Fails was produced by Madonna in Mirway and written by Madonna, Guy Sigsworth, and Jim. Guy Sigsworth has talked before about creating the song, and it was kind of a tribute to his wife. He would say that, you know, although they didn't have this extremely crazy dramatic relationship, he wanted to make something for her. Because remember, at the time, and still to date, anytime there's a relationship song, oftentimes people want to hear the bad, the breakups, the getting together, the falling in love. Not kind of the status quo. So Guy Sigsworth ultimately approached Jem, the singer, who you might know from this song.
Now on Facebook, Jim had said, I heard Madonna singing Nothing Fails yesterday and it brought back so many crazy memories. I wrote this song, originally called Silly Thing, to a backing track given to me by Guy Sigsworth. He had already written the first verse. I had no record deal, no money. I was couch surfing in London, then going back to my mum's for weeks on and off. At this particular time, I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor at my brother's London apartment. It was after midnight. I was on the floor with my Sony Walkman, headphones in, and feeling a little Cinderella-esque. I channeled the rest of the song. You could take all this, take it away. My favorite lyrics were, I'm not religious, but I feel so moved, makes me want to pray, pray you'll always be here, I'm not religious. Which I wrote thinking about my ex-boyfriend of many years. I used to joke with him, Madonna's singing about you. Of course, everyone thought it was about Guy Ritchie. We recorded the demo the next day. It was the summer of 2001. Little did I know that by 2003, it would have been adapted, recorded, and released by Madonna before I even had a record deal. I remember getting the call a little over a year later in the autumn of 2002. I was at the bottom of a big hill leading up to my sister's apartment. I was alternating several different sofas, beds, apartments at this point, so I couldn't stay and I wouldn't overstay my welcome. So grateful to everyone for the hospitality. With Tesco, UK grocery store, shopping bags in hand, I continued up the hill in a complete daze. Tarantino was talking about being an unknown writer and getting a call from Tony Scott about wanting to direct true romance, etc. Crazy things can happen if you keep on keeping on. What I thought was interesting is this is one of those times, and if you've been a listener of the show, the original Dow James Rodriguez, you know there are so many times that artists will ultimately start out as songwriters, or artists are creating, you know, their debut album, and some of the songs go to somebody else. In this case, it was interesting to hear that we now know Jem as the singer. Many times people get her confused with Dido, both have an amazing discography. But Jem was able to have, even before her record deal, a song cut by one of the biggest global artists. Now here is Nothing Fails. Which would peak at number one in Spain, number one on the hot single sales, and number one on the dance club songs. And at the end of this, I'm going to play a little snippet of a remix. Enjoy. Nothing fails, no more fears. Nothing fails, you wash away my tears. Nothing fails, no more fears. Nothing fails. I hope you're enjoying these episodes. Don't forget to rate, review, and let me know what you think. And if you truly remember the first time you heard any of these songs, follow me on Twitter at James Rodriguez, Instagram, the.original.doll, or go old school with the website, www.theoriginaldoll.com, and feel free to join me on Patreon. I'm going to be posting some exclusive content only on there. We're going to be talking about some of these songs more in detail and several goodies coming up. Just want to say thank you so much. Hope you're having a great day. See you on the flip side.